Welcome to Fresh Me, a freewheeling podcast from Manifest Group, where we get to talk to some of the best creative minds from all around the world. Expect great advice, new insights, and a lot of inspiration. Don't forget to subscribe and share. This episode is in partnership with PR Mums, a company looking to help creative professionals back into the workplace after becoming parents. We're hosting a conversation with the mother of the house, the Right Honourable Harriet Harman MP, a prominent champion of women's rights. She's ushered in the National Childcare Strategy, the Equality Act, changed the law on domestic violence and increased female representation as a minister in the Labour government. She is also the first female Labour politician to answer PMQs. Harriet will be in conversation with me, Ali Monad James. I am the managing partner at Manifest UK. I'm a female in the creative industry. I'm a mother to a toddler. I'm a wife. I'm a marketing academy scholar. Oh, I'm tired, <laughs> but I'm feeling super energised today to be having the opportunity to talk to Harriet about the important issue of lost talent and what we can do to prevent women leaving the creative industries. The creative industries are 97% female, yet we have a 12% gender pay gap a lack of female leaders and experienced ways of women leaving the workforce. Obviously, we're on a mission to change that. But Harriet, what do you think are the driving forces behind this? Well, thanks very much for inviting me and well done for setting up uh, PR Mums. And I really, I think that the main issue is about the numbers. I think ultimately, if you get equal numbers, it seems to sort of work properly and the decisions get made right. But the difficulty is is if the level that you're at, you're outnumbered. Somehow there's something about the critical mass. It needs to be a critical mass of women. So you don't have to be like pointing things out that it just organically happens, that the decisions are made in a sensible way. And the difficulty is very much if you're an outlier, you know, you kind of carry it with you and you feel it all the time. Sometimes it shows itself in in overcompensating, working five times as hard as men, preparing five times as hard as men, beating yourself up five times as hard as men if you ever make a mistake. But I think that that sort of slightly melts away when you've got actual critical numbers and therefore things like paternity leave, support for childcare, start organically working when you've got a critical mass of women or if you've got you know, majority of women. And we have got so far to go. A young woman I know has got a job in Germany now, and she is going to work in the public sector. And they pay you 15% more when you've got a a child. I mean, it's like, God, (laughs) and that's in the public sector. And it's like, well, of course, it does Everyone's cost more. Everyone's booking a flight to Germany now. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, so, we'll, we'll come on to the shared parental leave and the paternity leave in a sec. And I wondered about the, um, the outlier conversation because I think COVID has changed the way that we're all working. I think that flexibility that it's given us has meant that maybe more, more women have been able to actually have that flexibility with the childcare and home, but also for men as well. Have you seen there's been a bit of a, a flex with men kind of having a bit more flexibility with their roles and actually offering women to go back to the workplace? Yeah, and I think the important thing is that the numbers, again, work out okay. Because if you've got a pattern of work, which is working from home predominantly with less working in the office or wherever, and if that pattern is 
predominantly women, then it tends to be one which will fall behind and get discriminated against. So in a way, what's important is that the emerging pattern, which is needs to be family friendly, needs to be equally populated by men as well as by women. And that's something that I don't know how you're going to address in what you do as PR mums, which is the husbands and partners. Because I think in a way, it's about looking to the husbands and partners. It's about looking to each other as mums. And it's also about looking to your employers and the workplace that you're in. But looking to the partners is not one that kind of can be left out. Because the truth is that, and you can see this in the general household survey, which is the sort of statistical thing, is that the responsibility for looking after young children still disproportionately rests with the mother. And sometimes that is because the man is earning that much more than the woman, and therefore it kind of makes sense for her to go part-time or her to drop her hours. But sometimes it's just a cultural thing, even when he's earning less. Somehow there's the prospect that he's going to be massively more successful, even if he's not actually showing up with it at the time. But um, so I think that the issue of how you negotiate in the home, as well as how you negotiate at work and, you know, how you support each other to do that. You know, I don't know whether or not we should have some sort of shared audit forms where you actually literally go through and work out who's doing what. Because I mean, we all know what it consists of. You know, when you say childcare, we know what that means. You know, it, it means everything. It means working out the childcare. It means working out what happens if the childcare breaks down or if the child is ill or if you've got one of those transitions from nursery to reception, then what you do in school holidays and what you do if the child's ill. And then there's the, birthday parties and there's other children's birthday parties and there's the holidays and there's the food to be keeping everybody fed and the everything about managing the home because mostly it seems that women are the CEO of the home still running the home which is kind of weird really um, terribly paid job though yeah, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> but you know it's interesting because the general household survey there's different answers when you ask men than if you ask women in the same household. So basically, the, the man's perception and report of what he's doing at home is different from what hers is. And sorry, I just know who I believe on that. But I think that there is cultural change that needs to happen amongst men of this generation. And I think it is beginning to happen. There are what are called male allies but I think that it's still the default position is still women doing everything. And I think that the demand and expectation from all of you is that you're, if you've got male partners, they should not just not undermine you, which is a start, but not just support you, but actually champion your work because you're still pioneers, really. And you need that belief and that championing you. So I think a sort of matrimonial duty of husbands is to actually champion what the woman is doing at work and never be like by default falling back on her to be organizing everything in the home so that he doesn't have in his head all the getting the presents for the 
other child's birthday party and dealing all, with all of that. Completely. And Rob, so my husband and I did share parental leave. I think he was the first person in his company to ask for it. It was a, it's a statutory right that every male has um, to be able to ask for that. But do you think men are aware of that? Do you think it's a discussion that, you know, people in this room could be having with their partners to kind of explore that? Yeah. And I think you have to recognise the difficulty, which is why it's important to look to employers as well, having talked about looking to each other, looking to the husband and looking to the employer. Because if the father thinks that it's going to be a signal to the company that he's less committed than the others who are not taking parental leave, then he's in jeopardy taking that. And that's why I think in a way, again, looking to employers, is that it would be good for them to do surveys and report to all employees how many men are taking parental leave of their employees and how many women are, and then set themselves a target so that they know one of their performance targets is for their men to take parental leave because that's how you ultimately show you're a really good non-discriminating employer. And it might be you're not helping your women employees, but you're helping somebody else's women employees. And then the barrier might be fear of discrimination, and you can address that, or the barrier might be money, in which case they've got to address that and top up the very, very poor and inadequate state system. So I think, yeah, getting in at the early stages, and so they get to be like, proficient is important because otherwise what happens, as you, as you probably know, is that the woman gets more and more proficient and does everything quicker and quicker. And if it's then something that's taken up by the man, he does it more slowly, gets it wrong more times. And then it's like not worth her while telling him she's, he's done it wrong. And then he's complaining that he's being nagged. And so it goes on. So I think actually keeping him up to speed is quite an important thing. And I think companies can help with that by, by the starting off and also by publishing their flexible work statistics. Because if their flexible work is all being done by women, why are the men not doing the flexible work? And they need to then get to be equal flexible working, you know, equal reduced hours and equal taking up paternity pay. I can see some people looking glazed as if this is completely unrealistic. Utopia is here. (laughs) uh, But that's how you expose what is kind of what what is kind of going on. Yeah. So one one of the points that we find is that people struggle to have that conversation with their employers. So if there's any kind of business owners in the in the room here today, what would you advise in kind of creating an environment where people can feel safe, you know, open up about fertility treatment they're having, if they're, you know, if, they've, if they are having childcare problems, if they're, you know, going through all different ways of becoming a parent, how can we facilitate conversations more openly that people don't feel so vulnerable? Well, I think in a way, the work that you're doing here is very important in that because you're like raising the issue, you're saying it's an issue. Perhaps you can ask companies to adopt a protocol about it so that the first time it's raised like, you know, fertility treatment. It's not by the woman who herself is experiencing it and un- undergoing it. It's much easier if you're doing something in a normalised context. And I think you can help with that by getting companies to adopt policies on that sort of thing. However undemanding the policy is, if there is a policy on your employees that are going through fertility treatment, it makes the conversation much more 
easy because it shows that it's a normal, quite prevalent thing. And I mean, the same with menopause policies and such like. I mean, I know we're going to talk about ageism as well. But I mean, honestly, not so long ago, you literally could not mention the word menopause in the House of Commons. I mean, the hot the men would have been having hot flushes. I mean, they absolutely. But now it's kind of more normalised. And when a young Scottish woman MP got up and said, oh, sorry, I've just lost my train of thought momentarily. I'm on my period. I nearly felt, I nearly fell dead down on my, on the green benches. I never thought the day would happen. But once it's normalized, it's much easier because you do feel very, very exposed because of what's happening to you, let alone how you negotiate that interface with your employer. So we're saying start that conversation, be the first, take that kind of bold step with them. Well, I would say, for the or do it collectively to begin with, which is get them to develop the policies and then you or develop the policies and then give them here's one we made earlier for them to adopt. And then people can work into that policy. And if they aren't the first, they're not the first to raise it. Yeah, brilliant. Talking about the ageism thing then. So when we hear a lot about from our community about ageism, discussing attempts to get back into the workplace on their former career path. The issue we find, obviously, with women is that there's implications later in life, so like pension gap, for example, when we take kind of bigger breaks from our career. What are the ensuing challenges that we pass on to kind of government and the economy if this isn't tackled? Well, I think it's good to recognise that there's a very different chronology for women's career paths and working patterns than there are for men's because of the issue of actually having having children. So I think that the most important thing is not to be apologetic about your age. And if anybody ever says to me, oh, I didn't realise you were 73, I, you look younger. I go, what's wrong with being 73? Why do I need to look younger? So I think that we collude in a way with it by wanting to be or look younger. I mean, I actually don't want to be younger being younger was quite exhausting for me. Um, <laughs> mind you, having said that, I did stay overnight with my daughter last night because she's away working. And I did have the first one getting into my bed at 5.45, wanting to watch Gruffalo. And then, and then the second one uh, woke up and needed her bottle and have to come in the bed and watch Gruffalo. And then the third one also <laughs> came in to see what was going on. So then I was very relieved to get in the shower um, uh, and say, I have to go and work. I'm taking a train to the city. Um, so, but I think the way to think about it is the problem that we face is there's like kind of three ages of women and three ages of men. And I think it goes like this, is that when you're a, a young woman going into a workplace, often you're regarded as a bit distractingly attractive and that the predominant thought towards you is, am I going to date her? And that kind of gets the wires crossed a bit. And I mean, I found this once with one of my special advisors in government and she was like, came back speaking to me saying, I just, you know, I just don't feel I'm able to do as good a job for you as I want to, because she's obviously always in the only woman in the room as a special advisor in government. And they're all kind of planning to date me and not taking me seriously. Do you think I should, you know, and she, she used to wear quite short skirts and have long 
very swishy, shiny hair. Do you think that I should be dressing differently? Should I be wearing sort of longer skirts? And I felt so conflicted about that because the truth was they weren't taking her seriously because they were all thinking about dating her. But then I didn't want to be the one to say, you know, cover yourself up. So when you're, when you're younger, you can suffer from being distractingly attractive. Whereas when the man is young, he's like, got his whole future ahead of him, possibly, you know, is going to be a senior figure in the, in the industry. He, he's, he's in his prime. So then when you get to sort of thirties or wherever and you having children and he's having children as well, he's, he's a family man solid, reassuringly virile. And if, you know, especially if he's got three or even four, but, but she's just got too many children. She's a write-off. So he's in his prime, but, but she's a write-off. And then when you get to be older, he's like experienced, wise, senior, you know, a bit of the silverback gorilla about him, a bit of a George Clooney. And she's past it. So it's like he's had his prime three times and she never has. So I think the most important thing is to own the age you are in and be in your prime at that particular point. So like I'm 73 now, but I'm in my prime because I'm insisting on having it, having not realised I was in my prime in those those earlier eras. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't get a motivational talk. I mean, come on. And um, if there was ever a, a bunch of women that could change the narrative about, uh, uh, you know, the, the generation of feeling knackered when we're 30-odd, I think it's us lot. So let's get our heads together and make it a project after. Talking about generational differences, it's quite funny with the Gen Z audience now and the Gen Z generation in our in, in our workplaces. Have you heard about the lazy uh, girl working? Yeah, I was seeing what you were saying <laughs> about the lazy girl working trend, whereas they so they embrace balance, valuing family, friends, and personal time versus the career is everything attitude of their older colleagues. Yeah, but I would say two things about that. I think that the older colleagues might well have really been very concerned about their family responsibilities and all of that. But you were penalised if you showed it. So you look like your career is everything, but you really weren't. And therefore, it's important as women, we have insight into those older women and we don't just take them at face value of the face that they actually had to give. So that's just a little plea for a bit of understanding of the trials and tribulations of of the older women in the, and also there was such a penalty, less so hopefully, but there was such a penalty of stepping outside that, that actually it did feel like you just had to, to go in that particular thing. But also the issue of embracing balance, valuing family, friends, and personal time. It's a really difficult one, that one, because your work is a very adrenalized thing. It's exciting. You've got out of bed, you've got out of the door, you've traveled to your work, you're with a load of people that you share a project with, and it's very adrenalized and very exciting. And obviously, the family is incredibly important as well. And therefore, it is quite difficult to be saying, I'm going to prioritize one over the other. 
And the other thing is the sort of speed, that the speed of things is that when you're at work, it's that, that, that decisions all the time. You're doing this, you're doing emails, you're doing calls, you're, you know, going to things. It's really quick. But then when you're with kids, it's like so slow. It can take you about 20 minutes to walk 100 yards because you've got to walk along the wall and then back along the wall and then stop and look at a dog and then open the snack bag. And it's the speed and stepping out of the speed of work into the just laid back of home is a difficult, difficult transition to do. I, having wrestled with this, you know, literally my whole time since I had kids, I often said, right, I'm going to pack it in. It's just impossible. I'm not going to do it. It's just too exhausting and exposed and terrible. And I'm being terrible in my work. And I'm being terrible at home as well. I'm going to pack it in. And then various of my friends would say, oh, you just had a cold. When you've got over your cold, you'll feel a bit better. Don't pack it in. Or there's holidays coming up. But then I remember that holidays are actually more exhausting than work. Uh, and, but when I look back on it, I'm glad I didn't pack it in. And I didn't take the, the sort of mummy track that a lot of my friends of my generation did. Because, and you can't see it when your kids are, are your age, but when you're working as a mum, you're showing them the world. I used to think it was absolutely terrible if ever I travelled for work. And once I went to China and I felt terrible about going to China, quite frankly, the jet lag as well. I mean, I was like, you had the jet lag, all the work, the kids, etc. I felt absolutely terrible. But then I saw my daughter watching TV and there was something on the TV about China. And she was watching it with absolute fascination, you know, aged about nine, and then wanted to talk to me about it. And I suddenly realized I had taken her out to the world. And you only see, when they're little, you only see what you take away from them. You don't see what you're really bringing into their lives about being somebody who can make things happen and who can do things and can be an agent in your own life. So that's, I am quite glad I didn't take that mummy track. So I hope that these, what are they called? Lazy girl workers. Lazy girl workers, but terrible name, isn't it? But <laughs> I hope these lazy girl workers, you know, there's no right decision, but I hope they're making the right decision ultimately. And, you know, I think there is no right answer. That's the answer until there's 50% women and then everything will be organically fine or even more than 50% women. And if I can at this point mention that there's no equivalence of female domination in a workplace and male domination because women are the underrepresented pioneering people coming forward and therefore the critical mass of numbers matters for them. But men are not the undervalued pioneers and therefore, they don't need to have a critical mass of numbers. And therefore, it's not about gender equality. It's about women's equality. So I don't hold with men complaining that they're in a the minority. And I would say something about male allies at this point, because I think there is a new generation of men who, I mean, in the past in the women's movement, 
We didn't want men to be anything to do with any organizations or even attending a meeting like this because they would be like doing all the talking. And we would like sit there and nod. And we'd think, God, we'd had a women's meeting and all the men did all the talking. So basically, <laughs> men were all shut out. And it was also, you know, we've got to tackle sexual offenses. We've got to tackle rape. And so that men were like a sort of hostile, threatening outgroup. And therefore, we excluded them. But with the change, that's, you know, in the 70s, going back a long way. But now that there are potentially a lot of male allies, there are men who have been brought up by feminists, who agree with feminism, who want women to be equal. And I think they need to be sort of embraced into the women's movement, but on certain conditions, because I think that they need to step up, but they shouldn't step in front and they shouldn't even really step alongside. They should be one step behind because women need to have the leadership of their own progress and their own change. So I think there is a real role for male allies and we should like you know, identify people as male allies or not. You know, we identify ourselves as feminists or not. We should identify men as male allies or not. And they should be like proud to be male allies and identify themselves. And that's something the Fawcett Society, which I chair, is kind of encouraging the notion of male allies. Somebody joked that it would be great for them to put on Tinder, I am a male ally. <laughs> Might I don't know anything about fair. that. Yeah, exactly. You know. So if it's great if you've got a male ally within your workplace, but what about those kind of male-dominated workplaces that people or women struggle to kind of feel heard and feel seen? You know, and maybe they're getting you know overlooked for promotions, they're getting overlooked for opportunities to kind of push themselves. Do you have any advice about anything you've overcome in that kind of situation or anything, you, you know, advice for women out there that might be feeling that right now? Well, I think it's very important, the sort of discussions that you're raising so that you, you cannot think it's about you, that you've got the context and you don't feel that somehow you're causing a problem. And the truth is, in a male-dominated workplace, women, unless there is a specific policy or an intention of the men to actually bring forward women into equal numbers, their women will be being overlooked. That is just a fact. That is the state of affairs that there will be. And therefore, the point is, I think, not to internalise it, but to recognise you're part of a movement for change, which is not only going to you know, improve GDP, improve the finances of your actual company that you're working in the industry, because the loss of talent is a massive thing, you know, and it's a people-powered industry that you're in, a very successful one, and it needs to be modernising and looking to the future. And women are part of that, you know, they're that appeal to modernity, really. Brilliant. A bit of real talk. How do you think the current government is failing women? <laughs> um, well, I think that I'm very worried about the kind of war on woke the idea that that somehow women are are just have learned moaning victimhood and that actually women are equal now and all they think all they need to do is recognize that that they shouldn't be just complaining and i think that that is very dangerous because the truth is there's quite a backlash there's a misogynistic backlash whenever there is women making advances there is always a backlash and actually they should be uh, speaking out against that backlash, the cultural conversation that the government leads is very important indeed. Incidentally, it's very interesting. Have you seen on GB News 
about that um, presenter saying about another presenter in a different channel about, you know, who'd want to shag her. I mean... Let's not give them the airtime. Yeah, well, I've (laughs) forgotten all their names anyway. But that sort of thing, we should recognise that that is not just a one-off weird episode. That is misogyny, of which there is a lot of cultural acceptance of it, and it should not be acceptable. It's not laddism. It's not just bants. It's actually oppressive of women and discriminatory against women. And the thing is that it always applies. It would not apply to any of you if you would only just shut up and stay at home. But if you actually go out and be authoritative and speak and be good at what you do, God help you, because actually you've got to be shut up and put in your place. That's what it's about. It's about putting women in their place uh, by making them feel uncomfortable. And I mean, I had loads of, I mean, I remember one time it was, I think it was even in, you know, a sort of progressive newspaper that this columnist had put, oh, you know, who'd want to shag her? But I mean, that was just just one of those sorts of things. And I think the government doesn't provide the right cultural leadership and doesn't recognise that you need government action to to change things. So, for example, you need affordable childcare. You need to have pay in the public sector like Germany with the, you know, 15% extra for having children. You need proper working social care because women, when they get a little bit older than you are, will then be having the responsibility for caring for older relatives as well. So you need social care and you need the government determined to drive change in the pay gap. We've got the figures now on the transparency of the pay gap. So you can see it company by company. You can see it sector by sector. What the government should do is give the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is the regulator, the power to set targets for particular companies and for particular sectors and say, if you don't meet those targets, then we'll fine you. I mean, that's what they do with sewage. You know, if there's an outlet of sewage, then they get fined. And the Equality and Human Rights Commission is the only regulator that doesn't seem to have any enforcement powers for sectors. It's, it can help individuals bring cases, but it needs to have sectoral powers to set targets and enforce them. Okay. Do you think the Labour Party is doing enough to bring women into the party? You've been obviously very pivotal in that kind of movement and maybe politics in general. Well, I think that one of the reasons why the Labour Party was my political home was because it felt like that it was the political wing of the women's movement. And if you were in the women's movement and you wanted to see women getting equality at home, at work, in public services, in all the different professions, the place that you went to would be the party that was for progressive change rather than the conservative party, which was about, you know, the small c conservative, about not making that progressive change, which is often very controversial and quite difficult. So when I started out, there was a strong sort of predominance in in the Conservative Party of the idea that the role of the woman was to be supportive of the man in his family, look after his children, be a housewife for him, and that men were the leaders, and that that was family values. And therefore, the women's movement was considered very much as a threat to family values because it was undermining the head of the family. It was considered very subversive. But the Labour Party felt like, although it had bags of its own problems of male dominations, absolutely 
bags of those problems. It felt like the place to be the, the place in p- politics where you meant, you know, you made your political home. I remember once we were, I did a thing which caused absolute outrage and controversy, which was look at the number of men MPs and the number of women MPs region by region and rank the regions according to how many women MPs they didn't have. Anyway, the North came out very badly and the men in the North were absolutely furious, the male Northern MPs. And I said, well, we need more more women MPs. And this guy said, there aren't any women in the North. And, (laughs) you know, it took me a little while to work out that what he meant. And that change is felt to be quite threatening. So we've had our arguments within the Labour Party and we still continue to have our arguments because we haven't reached, you know, the perfect state of equality. But that's why it felt like to be my political home and always has been. Harriet, thank you so much. Lots that we can take away from today. Uh, The importance of male allyship, letting women lead the conversation but being supportive. The importance of normalising tricky conversations around fertility, menopause, paternity, maternity and parental leave. And then if you're a parent, don't feel guilty for not being at home. Focus on what you're bringing to your family rather than what you're taking away. Um, And as for employers, reassess your policies. Are they inclusive and are they supportive? Um, So amazing conversation. Thank you again, Harriet. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music so you never miss an episode. And Stay fresh. 